Well, it is good to come together once again. And again, we are in Luke chapter 23 this morning, and we will soon begin to start in verse 26. So, so be ready to, to look at verse 26. Now, we're not going to go too far this morning. We're going to break it up just a, a, a little bit. But today's passage, we are going to be with Jesus Christ on the road to the cross. On the road to the cross. And next week, Lord willing, we will be at the cross, the pinnacle of the gospel, the heart of Christianity, the very cross that is our only boast, the cross of Jesus Christ. But this morning, we are on the road to the cross. Last week, we saw how everything went down, right? How an innocent man was eventually condemned to die. Remember, as we talked about over the last couple of weeks, that, that Luke gives us these, these very specific details within his gospel because he wants us to know without a shadow of a doubt, with certainty, the innocence of Jesus. That Jesus is not only innocent before man, but that he is also innocent before God. Even a Gentile like Pontius Pilate and the wicked fake king Herod could discern that Jesus was innocent and guiltless in their own words. So we need to know this, that when he does hang on the cross, when they do crucify him, that we will know without a shadow of the doubt that Jesus was not there because of any crime that he had committed or any sin that he had committed, but rather Jesus was on the cross suffering the penalty and death at the hands of wicked men to bear the wrath of God. That is why Jesus is on the cross. And last week, we saw an image of that substitutionary atonement in Barabbas. So, this is a very biblical idea of substitution. It's very vivid in what we talked about last week with Barabbas, that this murderer and insurrectionist, right? The, the, the very thing that Jesus was charged for by the Jews for insurrection and and, and a rebellion, the very things that, that they charged Jesus with, they, they cried out for him to be released and Jesus to be put to the cross. An innocent man was sent to death and a guilty man was set free. And this is the very heart of the gospel. This is the very center of the gospel. This is where the, the cross, the importance of the cross, the substitutionary atonement of Christ. We know this is the heart of the gospel because we know Romans 5, Ephesians 2 tells us that, that we were the guilty ones, that we were like Barabbas, that we were the enemies of God, that we were the haters of God. And in all the millions and millions of ways that we have come up with to usurp the authority of, of, of God and to show that we ourselves deserved that just wrath of God. And yet Jesus took the cross in our place. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the free gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he was our sinless substitute on the cross. Our perfect representative. Most of you probably know Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what about verse 24? and are justified, justified, justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as our propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This rich, deep, life-giving theology that we read about in Romans 3 and Romans 6 and the whole book of Romans is salvation explained. And in Luke, what we see this week and the following weeks will be salvation accomplished by Jesus Christ and Him alone. Not in me, but all in Him. So let's look at our, our text this morning, starting in verse 26, and let's, let's read this together. Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 26. As they led him away, this is Jesus, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. In their following him, a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say that the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And this is the word of the Lord. And may His Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see His holy, inspired, inerrant word for His glory and our joy. Amen. The focus of Luke chapter 23, and the whole book of the Gospel of Luke, is the cross. It's the one thing that we are getting to, that we were meant to, to get to. It's almost like a beeline. We're, maybe not for us, we've been doing this for a couple years now. However, it's a beeline to Luke chapter 23 because this is the, the heart of the Gospel. From the very beginning of Luke's gospel, we've seen that this is true. We knew that, that Jesus came to die. Jesus, throughout his life and ministry, he, he tells us that he was going to die. The Old Testament prophecies toward, point us toward that very truth. Luke even comments throughout the, the book, chapter 9, verse 51, he tells us, he tells the readers that he wants us to know that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. Why? Because he's going there to, to die. And now, this morning, we see that Jesus is directly on the road to the cross. Now, to get a better understanding and better picture of what's happening, I want us to turn over to Matthew 27. So go ahead and flip over to Matthew 27 for just a moment. We'll be back at Luke 23, so keep your finger there. And, and look at verse 24. So Matthew chapter 27, verse 24. Verse 24, it says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. 
And all the people answered. This is the, the verse that got uh, Mel Gibson in trouble a couple years back, actually a couple decades now. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head. And they put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, and took the reed, and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to crucify him. Luke doesn't include these details. But these details, I think, are very important for us to understand in reading because it helps us to understand the physical and mental state in which Jesus is in when we get to Luke 23, verse 26. It helps us understand where Jesus was. Crucifixion was the, the capital punishment that Jesus was sentenced to. It was the capital punishment by Rome that was perfected with maximum gruesome pain. Not as, a harsh, not as a harsher level of punishment to inflict on the criminal himself to, just to punish him, but rather that this person or the criminal would be a spectacle to strike fear in the heart of all people when they see what goes down. They didn't do it because they thought it was just fun. They did it because it was a deterrent that Roman authority and law was not to be challenged or broken. And in Jerusalem, the, the Roman soldiers had this routine down of crucifying people. They had it down to a brutal science with lots of practice. Jesus was treated just as another criminal. The charges this time, a king. So they made fun of him. They mocked him. They beat him. They put their robe on him, portraying him as this king and, and, and mocked him as if he was their king. And after all the brutality and the beating and the mocking that he received, he was led to the place of the crucifixion. At that bleeding, he would have been in the middle of four different soldiers carrying the the crossbeam of the cross, the patabellum of the cross. And this crossbeam would have weighed as much as a hundred pounds, a hundred pounds, that he had to carry and take with him all the way to Golgotha, which is outside the city. Routine for the soldiers. This is what they do. This is our science. This is what we have perfected. This is what I am a professional at doing. Routine for the soldiers as they marched him through the city that day. But along the way, there would be a few surprises. There would be a few surprises and surprises that turn out to be eternally significant. The first of those surprises on the road to the cross is surprising providence. Is surprising providence. So think about it. In the 
in the worst moments of human history, again, we, we've said this before, in the worst movements, uh, moments of, of human history, when, they, when, when a beaten, battered, and exhausted Savior is being marched through the streets of Jerusalem as a spectacle of death and punishment to be a deterrent, Jesus is marched through the city by the Roman soldiers. What happens to this random guy named Simon of Cyrene? He's seized or compelled into service by the, by the Roman soldiers to do what? To carry the crossbeam of Jesus. Verse 26, And as they led him away, they seized which means he did it not willingly. He didn't want any part of this. Who would? Not only is, to him, Jesus is just a criminal, but how humiliating that I have to carry his cross. They seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And yet in this verse, there are, there are gospel purposes that God has for the man who was seemingly inconvenienced, humiliated, conscripted into service unwillingly, who was just coming into the city for, I don't know, one reason or another. One of the, think of the many reasons why we say we got to go to town, or, and he's just coming to town. He's met by the crowd and he's conscripted into service of this processional to the cross so that it could continue. Now, it's, it's not that Jesus wasn't physically fit enough to carry the cross. I think Jesus was a pretty strong dude. I think Jesus was very physically strong. But what we just read, while we had to read Matthew 27 to get a context of why Jesus would not be able to carry the cross. Jesus had been up all night. He prayed in agony in the garden. He was betrayed by, the, by one of his own. He was arrested and interrogated all night, smacked and punched in the face by the temple guards, denied by one of his closest friends, tried again by Pilate twice, sent to Herod, back to Herod, mocked by Herod. He was beaten. He was whipped. He was scourged. He was mocked some more. And not to say the least of all that the wrath of God that he was about to endure after hours of physical and emotional torment, physically and emotionally, Jesus didn't have enough strength or capacity as any of us would to carry his cross. And that's obvious on the road to the cross. The soldiers... This is their routine. And they're like, we, we don't have all day to wait for this guy to stumble on. So they grab Simon and they, they, they put him into duty. And that is the surprising providence for Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene was a, an area of North Africa, and today it's in Libya. There was a strong Jewish community there in Cyrene, and there actually was enough Cyrenian Jews in Jerusalem for, they to, for them to have their own synagogue. And that is according to Acts chapter 6. So another Luke's writings, Acts chapter 6, verse 9. 
And in Acts 13, 1, there were, there were actually converts to Christianity uh, from the Cyrenian synagogue. One of them in particular is named, and his name was Lucius of Cyren, the Cyrenian. But what's interesting about uh, this passage is, is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us about this guy. They all tell us about this Simon of Cyrene who just so happened to be there that day, walking through the streets that day and randomly chosen. And in fact, Luke's, Luke even stops the whole story of, of Jesus on the road to the cross and, and, he, and he stops the story as if he's trying to remind the readers who this guy is. And he says something like this. He says, hey, yeah, you, you know this guy. So, you know, Simon. He's the father of Alexander and Rufus. And so, so that may not mean anything to us. We may know someone named Alexander. We may know someone named uh, uh, Rufus. That may not mean anything to us. But to those first century readers, they're like, oh, yeah, Simon. Yeah, because I know Alexander. I know Rufus, and that's his dad. Yeah, sure, I know who you're talking about. We have conversations like that. Right? We're like, oh, yeah, okay, I know who you're talking about now. And it was because Simon was seized to carry the cross for Jesus. He thought Jesus was just another criminal. He thought it was humiliating. But Simon would carry the cross eventually for his Savior. And how do we know that? Why else would the, the gospel writer speak with such detail and such familiarity of Simon and his family, if not otherwise, Simon and his family, including his sons, somewhere down the line, by God's grace, would become a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ. Think about it. Simon, encountering Jesus face to face that day, thinking he was being humiliated, forced by an oppressive Roman regime to carry the cross of Jesus. And yet he saw his very Savior face to face that day, but then transformed and redeemed by the very one that he carried the cross for. There is an even more connection to Simon in the Gospels. And I think there's one that Paul makes for us in Romans 16. Romans 16, verse 13, Paul says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, if, if this is the same Rufus that Paul is speaking of, that Mark was telling us is, was the son of Simon of Cyrene, chosen in the Lord, Think about the providence of God on this day. In fact, Paul is specifically sending a greeting to, to Rufus and his mother, which was Simon's wife. And Simon's wife, Rufus's mom, was what to Paul? Like a mother to him. How amazing in God's providence that Simon of Cyrene, who encountered Jesus that day on the road, would bring salvation to that whole family. What surprising providence 
on the road to the cross, bitter providence for Jesus. Inconvenient providence, according to maybe Simon. But God uses this providence for gospel purposes in the life of Simon and his family. His sons come to faith, his family comes to faith, and if Paul's friend Rufus is the same Rufus, then what a blessing and a great joy of a father that a father would have in knowing the usefulness of the arrows of his quiver that have been shot out by the Lord into the, into the known world to be used as a blessing to even the Apostle Paul. What a testimony of God's surprising grace and sovereign grace for Simon. And you know, brothers and sisters, the same providence the same providence that the Lord used in Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross of Christ is the same sovereign providence that saved us. Hard providence that may come our way are often the means by which sovereign joy is building us up. What, prob what probably to Simon was, was, was him, he was the innocent guy in the whole mix. The innocent guy being used and abused by the Romans as he came up to that gruesome parade at that precise moment of Christ's need, he was forced to carry the loathsome crossbeam. But once a terrible moment for him had turned into a time of privilege. To have the cross laid on him and to bear it with Jesus to actually know what it means, as Luke 9.23 tells us, to take up his cross and follow him. Memories of bitter providence are used to produce sovereign joy. When bitter providence are upon you, do not be dismayed. Do not get frustrated or anger. Resist those temptations, knowing that the Lord must be getting ready to do something big because He is always using hard providences for gospel purposes in the lives of His people. And He's using hard providences in the life of unbelievers to draw them to Himself to woo them to himself. Some of the worst moments in our lives could turn into the best of circumstances if the end is Christ himself. And if that is what we gain. That's what happened with Simon that day. What a surprising providence on the road that day. The second surprise on the road to the, road to the cross is the surprising preaching of a suffering Savior. The surprising preaching of a suffering Savior. So as Simon of Cyrene is now following Jesus with his cross beam behind him, we see an interaction that, that Jesus gives that's, that's only in Luke's gospel. It's only in Luke's gospel. So there was this great multitude following in this processional to, to Calvary. Not everybody was there to cheer. 
There was a good number in this crowd and a good number of women that were following them and, and they were mourning and they were lamenting for Jesus, for him. And Luke highlights um, women throughout Jesus' ministry, doesn't he? He shows us throughout Jesus' ministry the, the faithful women. There would have maybe in that crowd, there might have been Mary, there might have been Martha, there might have been Mary, the mother of Jesus. We really don't know, but we do know it is a big group, and it's probably not just them, but a multitude of women from the city who would gather together whenever someone was being crucified and lament and mourn as these people were being marched to, the, to Calvary, almost in protest, it seems. And they, this group would also was known to bring the, the sponges of anesthetic to help numb the pain of those who were suffering. Maybe this was the group that was there. And so Jesus, he sees these women weeping and lamenting at what is about to happen to him. And Jesus has the strength to tell them, don't weep for me, but weep for yourself. The surprise was that the wretched prisoner on the verge of the most torturous death was thinking of them. What amazing grace. And he starts the sermon and he preaches a message to them. Verse 28, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Now Jesus is pointing them back. That sounds like Old Testament language, and it is. He's pointing them back to Hosea 10.8, which says, The high places of Avin, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorns and thistles shall grow in the, on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. So he's telling them, remember, so don't weep for me, weep for yourselves, and remember how God has brought judgment already upon Israel. Remember the judgment that God has brought on Israel, how they were exiled, how they were kicked out of the land. And why remember? Because judgment is coming for you. And again, I think he's very directly pointing us to that fall of Jerusalem that's coming in 70 A.D. Forty years later, Jerusalem is going to fall. And thousands will be crucified. And the city will be burnt. And the temple will be completely demolished once again. He is definitely referring them to the judgment that is going to come to Jerusalem. And it would be horrific. But he is also pointing them further into future. A future that is for us as well. Because this saying, Hosea 10.8, is to recall the words of judgment from Revelation. When the sixth seal is opened, it says, When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, 
there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and the fig trees shed its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day that the, of their wrath has come, and who can stand? These words may not seem like the kind of preaching that we are used to, or the preaching that is the gospel. But what do you think is the intent of Jesus in saying these things? What is the intent of what was the intent of Hosea? What is the intent of Jesus? What is the intent of John in Revelation, the Holy Spirit inspiring in all of them? What was the intent? It's an intent of repentance. Jesus is calling them to repentance. Jesus is calling us to repentance. Now, isn't repentance the point of the gospel? Isn't that what we want in, in preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel? We want to see faith and repentance. That is a biblical standard of response. And that's what Jesus is calling them to do. Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves because you need to repent. You need to repent. And the whole point of the cross is that people would repent to stop looking to themselves and their own justification and start looking to Christ and His perfect work on the cross to propitiate the wrath of God toward them, toward sinners. To repent because judgment is coming. And when the Lamb comes as the righteous judge, what a question that was asked of us. Who could stand? But we will be like the kings and, and slaves and all the generals and all the rulers hiding in our homes and hiding in our caves and, and hiding in our, our structures and our, our, our bomb, whatever those things are, what are they called? Bomb shelters and tornado shelters, and we'd be crying out, just fall on me and kill me already. And Jesus says, repent. Don't weep for me. Think about that. Of all the injustice that we've just seen in Christ. Paul's been telling us, or Luke's been telling us over and over, he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. We want to cry out, oh, the injustice. How could God let this happen by such wicked men? Oh, the injustice. And Jesus says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. That you could repent. 
Again, what surprising mercy and grace that even on the road to the cross, Jesus is preaching a message to the women and to us, a message of the gospel to repent. A surprising preaching of a suffering Savior, brothers and sisters, is to repent. To repent. And after that surprising preaching of Jesus on the road to the cross, he ends with the surprising proverb. Verse 31, he says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? So what is Jesus telling us here? Is he just giving us and giving them some tips on how to start a fire? No. You guys know that? No. But the image of what Jesus is saying makes sense. Green wood, wood that has just been cut, is still filled with moisture and, and sap, and that makes it harder for it to burn. Dry wood is, is, is just that that's dried. It's had the chance for the, the sun to dry out all the, the moisture and the, the sap, to dry it up from the sun, and it sits out for over a year or for a season so that when it is ready, it will ignite faster, and it will burn harder, and it will burn hotter. Green wood still has its use. You still can burn it. It's a lot harder, and it's a lot dirtier, and it's a lot smokier. But it's dry wood that burns faster and ignites faster. And again, Jesus is not teaching us about firewood, but this is a proverb. He is telling us one truth, one truth to point us to a greater truth. To point us to a greater truth. And you guessed it. It is the impending judgment that is coming for them and for us is going to be greater because it will be ready. It will be drier. So again, even when on the road to the cross, he is reminding them of the reality of judgment that is coming. So is Jesus then saying that he is the righteous green wood that is going to be burnt by Rome? And how much more, how much worse will it then be for unrighteous Israel, the dry wood when Rome falls down on them? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus just talking about the judgment that will come to Jerusalem in 40 more years, 70 A.D.? I think in part he is. He certainly is. But I think he's looking deeper. He's looking deeper, and I think Jesus is telling them this. He think he, I think he's telling them this, and he's telling us this, that if I am the Messiah and I am being judged, so if you think that judgment will not come to you, then you are fooling yourselves. But he is not talking as being judged by Rome. Remember, Rome judged him innocent. Who is Jesus being judged by? Jesus is being judged by the Lord. And this is what he is saying. That if I am the Messiah and I am being judged by the Lord, God, do not think that judgment is not going to come to you. And that it's going to burn hotter and faster when it's ready. And this is what the previous verses were alluding to. 
a judgment so harsh that there will be a reversal on what we consider blessing. Remember what it says? It's a, what, what a blessing it is to have children. It's a curse almost not to be able to have children, right? That's what it says. It's like, it's what, that's what the Old Testament thought processes have been. Or it's not good. It's to be looked down upon. But, but look at the reversal that Jesus says. That it actually would be blessed if you didn't have children. Because it's going to be so horrific and terrible. This proverb is a proverbial warning of judgment. And as the Lord was in the process of, uh, down this road of redeeming Simon's heart, there's a surprising providence for him. There are these words of, of Jesus telling us that the Lord is also able to redeem the hearts who are still in Israel. He's still preaching the gospel to them, to repent. The preaching of the gospel and to, to warning of judgment, it was an act of mercy and grace. Even when Jesus was still on the road to the cross in such physical and emotional pain and destruction where he was, he's still preaching the gospel. And he's telling us, judgment is coming, but there's still hope. Maybe it, it was Simon. Maybe it was what Simon heard that day from Jesus that sowed the seeds of salvation and of faith and repentance. However, we, we, do not know, we, we do know that after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ and during the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit filled the disciples and Peter preached the gospel that day. And guess what kind of message he preached? He preached a message a little bit like this one, just a little bit longer. It was a message of guilt. The guilt that Israel had and their sin and their failure to, to fulfill the law before God. He told them of judgment. He told them of, of, of judgment. And as he was preaching that day, there were many that repented and trusted in Christ. They, they actually they cried out, must, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized is what he said. And over 3,000 of them that day, people that included maybe Simon of Cyrene, maybe the very accusers in the crowd that day were, that were yelling out, crucify, crucify him. Surprising providence and surprising preaching. Brothers and sisters, we are here this morning because of that hope. We are here this morning because of the hope that is in the gospel. But let us not forget the truth that judgment will come. And the very cross itself that Jesus is going to, the one that, that Simon is carrying, should be a warning to us all and to all unbelievers that as we proclaim the gospel and as we share the gospel, yes, there is always hope. But the very cross itself is a sign that judgment will come. That is the green wood that will burn, that has burned. But how much worse when the dry wood is burned? Do you see that the very cross is the green wood? Judgment has come. The very cross itself is a warning that judgment will come. 
Simon was surprised by a providence that would transform his family. The women were surprised by the preaching of a Savior. But what about you? Were you surprised by the message of Jesus on the road to the cross? A message of coming judgment, but with a proverb of repentance? You know, it's easy to think, and it's easy to live life, sort of like how Simon of Cyrene was that day. Doing his own thing, making a trip to town, picking up whatever he needed to pick up. Doing his own thing, living his life, trying to be good, a part of the Jewish synagogue maybe there in Jerusalem, being responsible, taking care of his family and his wife, with no second thought to judgment or even repentance. But by God's surprising providence, there was Jesus on the road to the cross. And he says to us that real judgment, that judgment is real, that judgment is coming, and that he is going to die on the cross, and the cross is the proof that judgment is real and is coming. This isn't a message of condemnation only. It's not just a message of of judgment, but this is a message of mercy and compassion and one of repentance. And Simon of Cyrene himself is the very picture of the hope that there is in the gospel of repentance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the word this morning. We're thankful for the message that Jesus has shown us this morning. The surprising providence in the life of Simon, how we can see that in our lives, how you've so worked. The message of repentance, Lord, may we ever always be repenting. May we always be calling others to repentance. Because the the cross itself is, is very much the proof that judgment is real and that judgment is coming. Lord, I pray that we would look to our Savior, the one who walked that road, the one who took our cross and bore our sin in order that we would be saved, in order that we could be redeemed. And we give him the glory in all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.